This is Footy Time, and I'm Daniel Andrews. We've got a great show for you today. We've got our regular segments, Footy Time Trivia and Frozen in Time. We'll also have a go at alternate history, so what would have had to change to reverse the result in the 2011 Grand Final. We'll also have a go at playing True or False, so we'll pull out some of the main threads from the 2011 Grand Final, and uh, we'll have a bit of a chat about whether these statements were actually true or false. So for today's podcast, we've actually got a guest on. Welcome, Danny. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So Danny is actually an avid Hawthorne supporter. How many, how many years have you been going for Hawthorne, Danny? Uh, all my life. I think it was the first song that I learned to sing. <laughs> I've actually been singing multiple uh, club songs to my 10-week-old baby. So hopefully I can convince her to go for Melbourne after having heard almost all the songs every day. <laughs> I, think, I think that she'll... I think she'll, she will enjoy the uh, Hawthorne theme song. It's a great one. <laughs> it is pretty catchy. You reckon it's got grand old flag beat? It certainly <laughs> does. <laughs> Yankee Doodle Dandy is an all-time classic. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a hard sell to get young people to go for Melbourne these days, but can only try. Let's have a look at the road into the grand final for each of these teams now. We'll start with Collingwood. Collingwood had a great spread away from the contest thanks to their strong midfield that included Scott Pendlebury, Dane Swan, Dale Thomas, and a young steel side bottom. So they're really quite stacked in that region. They also had some good run out of defense with Harry O'Brien and Leon Davis providing some zip out of the back line. Up forward, they had the mercurial Alan Didak, excitement machine Andrew Cracker, and the imposing Travis Cloak, who was having a career best year. So you can see based on this, they had a really well balanced team. Interestingly, under Malthouse, they had quite a defensive game style where they favoured a boundary-first approach coming out of defence. Once marking in defence, they'd more often take it along the boundary rather than trying to get it inside. So this meant, at times, it could be difficult for them to score quickly, although they were one of the highest-scoring teams in 2011, so they were still able to put the score on the board. But in games where they were struggling to score a bit, Questions were raised about whether they should have been bringing the ball through the middle a little bit more. So what about Collingwood's road through the finals? So they were actually playing against West Coast in a qualifying final, having finished on top of the ladder. So this was at the MCG, and they were able to do it relatively comfortably over West Coast by 20 points. And it was actually Swan and Pendlebury who were racking out the possessions. So this saw Collingwood go straight through to the preliminary final. And it was Hawthorne who actually won through to play Collingwood in this prelim. Hawthorne themselves had had a great season, only dropping a few home and away games and finishing third on the ladder. So it was really a clash of two dominant teams throughout the year. And in this preliminary final, it was actually Hawthorne who were leading into the last quarter by about 16 points. And with 15 minutes remaining, Collingwood had only managed 37 points for the whole game. So evidently, something needed to change quickly for Collingwood to make this happen. Thankfully for Collingwood supporters, Collingwood did start to find their mojo, and the scoreboard began to tick over. Still, they were behind. And with just minutes remaining, it was Luke Ball who won the ball at a stoppage and put through a wobbly left foot snap to break Hawthorne hearts. This gave Collingwood the win by three points and put them through to the grand final, giving them a chance to go back-to-back after winning in 2010. Now let's consider the other side of the ledger. We've got Geelong. In contrast to Collingwood, who were boundary first, 
Geelong played ballistic football wherever they could, where they tried to take the ball straight down the middle as often as they could, getting speed on the game and giving their forwards the best chance. This approach did sometimes leave Geelong a little bit vulnerable on the counter-attack, but they had a great defence led by the likes of Harry Taylor and Matthew Scarlett that were able to hold up more often than not. Up forward, there was the unproven Tommy Hawkins, who was quite young at this stage, and the mercurial Steve Johnson, who could go from anywhere, really. Geelong also boasted a classy midfield with Jimmy Partell and Joel Selwood, who often took the game away from the opposition. Geelong's qualifying final opponent was actually Hawthorne, and Geelong was able to control this game almost from the outset, giving them a comfortable 31-point win, which booked them a place in the preliminary final. Geelong didn't have much trouble in their prelim either, up against West Coast this time at the MCG. They put on a huge score to end up smashing the Eagles by 48 points. This gave Geelong an amazing chance to cap off a golden era for their club, giving them the chance to win their third premiership in just five years. So the stage was set for the 2011 Grand Final. We had one versus two, but who would reign supreme on Grand Final Day? So going into the 2011 Grand Final, a lot of the talk was about taking injured players into the game. There was really a big contrast with what happened with each of the teams in this respect. So for Collingwood, there was actually Dane Beams who pulled out just prior to the grand final saying he wasn't 100% fit, although we don't really know how fit he was. And for Geelong, they were doing anything they could to get Stevie J out in the park. So Danny, are you a Dane Beams or a Stevie J? Would you have, would you have had the balls to pull out of a grand final? It's always such a big call weighing up superstar ability versus um, not being 100% fit. I, I think there's a limit of how many injured plays you can take into a grand final. I, I wouldn't personally take in more than one. I think there was just too much of a risk to take in more than one. What about with Johnson? Like Geelong just really wanted him out there, even if he was perhaps on one leg. Yes, and he can have an impact without having to move very far as well. His ability to do a lot with a little. Yeah, for sure. So he can make something out of nothing. So even if he's not you know, getting a lot of the ball or he's had a bit of a stinker, he might have a moment or two that really uh, changes the game. So one of the other things going on around the 2011 season, this was the height of the sub. So you guys remember this. Uh, it used to be three on the bench and one sub. So... The perennial debate was when to activate the sub. When do you risk uh, bringing on a fresh player, even if you haven't had an injury? So where, where did you stand on this, Danny, with the whole use of the sub? I actually liked it. I thought, I thought it was something different. Moldhouse hated it, which I think was an interesting thing in itself. Moldhouse was a big believer of never using the sub before the three-quarter time. Yeah, I remember that. Some coaches just refused to ever use it before three-quarter time. <laughs> It did seem a little bit um, wasteful sometimes. Okay, let's kick it off. Let's get into the 2011 Grand Final. The game started with a bang, with Varko exploding out of the centre in the first 10 seconds to goal, leaving Leon Davis in his wake, who was meant to be mining him at the centre bounce. Varko wasn't done yet either, as he received a clever kick from Steve Johnson to go back and nail a second set shot. Geelong had the fast start and they were getting out of the centre with relative ease, with Ottens jumping into injured ruckman Darren Jolly. It was a frenetic start early, with both teams taking their chances to take it through the middle when they received at half-back. 
Collingwood in particular had great runoff halfback with Leon Davis and Harry O'Brien. Although Collingwood were able to get a bit of quick ball movement exploding out of the back half, Geelong's defence was more often than not set and able to hold up pretty well. Eventually, Collingwood were able to get a few marks in the front half, and it was Travis Cloak who marked 60 metres out. It would have been beyond pretty much any other player's range, but at this time, Travis Cloak was in superb form, having a career-best season, and oddly enough, he was in range. At least he showed he was in range, as he wheeled around and struck it sweetly to see the ball sailing through the goals. It was all looking pretty good for Collingwood when Harry O'Brien found Nathan Cracker on the 50, who was able to drain another set shot to put Geelong on the back foot. They were able to respond though, with Steve Johnson finding some space at a stoppage and Cooley snapping a goal, as only Steve Johnson can. The first quarter was full of high-octane footy, with both teams taking the game on whenever they got the chance. And at the end of it, it was Geelong who took a narrow one-point lead into quarter time. To begin the second quarter, it was actually Collingwood who got the fast start this time, with Nathan Cracker kicking his second goal and just oozing skill. It was Collingwood's pressure that had really ramped up at the start of the second too, and was helping them control Geelong's ball movement, where they were trying to take it through the centre wherever they could. And it was Cloak again, this time marking just outside 50, and brought one back from right to left on the wrong side for a left footer to put it through again. This dominant period for Collingwood allowed them to steadily build their lead up to 18 points, where they were really getting on top in both inside 50s and the clearances. There were some worrying signs for Geelong, and they really needed a response. It was actually one of their small forwards, Stokes, who was able to get on the end of a crumb before trying to dribble the kick along the ground. It went dangerously close to the post, but luckily for Geelong, it just avoided the post and got Geelong on the board. Collingwood continued to look dangerous on the quick play out of their back line. In a great example of this, it was Harry O'Brien coming along the wing, kicking long inside 50 to one-on-one contests, before Nathan Cracker was able to ghost in front of the pack, taking a beauty, and then again kicking truly, to give him three first-half goals. It seemed as though the pendulum, though, started to tilt Geelong's way. They were steadying the ship, and it was their sure heads in the midfield, Jimmy Bartell and Joel Selwood, who began to come into the game more and more. Deep into the second quarter, there was a contentious bit of play. It was actually Dane Swan who marked in the defensive 50 from an errant Geelong kick low to the ground. The umpire must have been blindsided though, because he wasn't convinced that Swan had taken the mark. So all the umpire could do was call for a ball up right next to the boundary line. The problem with this was, Darren Jolly actually hit the ball from the ruck contest out on the full, giving the ball back to Geelong, 30 metres out. Again, it was unfortunate for Collingwood that the ball went to Jimmy Bartell, who was a great set shot. And on the right boot, he coolly went around on the right and snapped it straight through the middle. And just like that, the margin had been reduced to three points, when it looked like for much of the quarter, Collingwood would be taking a decent lead into half time. So what a great first half that was. We've got a few talking points that came out of that. Let's start with the fact that the injured Darren Jolly really seemed to be struggling in the ruck. Yeah, Daniel, I agree. He he started the game looking all right, and then he copped a hit across the body, which seemed to tweak his groin. He lost the ability to jump and compete in the air. Yeah, I guess he'd been carrying a bit of an injury for a lot of weeks throughout the season, but he re- def- I agree, he definitely seemed to tweak something there, and he really couldn't get off the ground. It was a bit of a worry, especially for Collingwood, though, because you know they do rely on their midfield a lot. So uh, one of our old mates from high school, Yarra Valley, 
cloak, he cut Collingwood's first goal when it looked like Geelong were definitely getting on top early. So I think he was at least 60 out. Do you remember that kick? He absolutely monstered it. Cloak was a huge impact on this first half. He, he His goal kicking in this first quarter, it was outstanding. He just was the player. He stood up in the big moments and his marking and kicking was outstanding. I'd say this was probably his best season. He had the you know record number of contested marks and he just looked like a man possessed in this game. Normally he's a bit shaky in front of goal, but he was just draining everything. And, and he was dragging his teammates with him, which was a great thing to see. Yeah, needed someone to spark him and get him into the game. Talk about a spark. What about Nathan Cracker? Three first-half goals. Yes, he came out of the blocks flying, which is a great... And he was a great story. Coming from where he's come from, he was a really good player. For sure. And Collingwood needed a bit of that zip in the forward line just to uh, complement some of their more dour players. So he was a great fit for them in this year. Unfortunately, it didn't last all that long, his stay at Collingwood, but uh, while he was there... He did some great stuff for them. So what about the pod, the iPod, Pod Seattle? Uh, went down about halfway through the second quarter. Looks like he was in a lot of pain with that dislocated shoulder. How do you reckon this affected Geelong's forward structure, Danny? I think con- considering the uh, conditions, I think it could have been a blessing in disguise. Um, it, they, they looked top-heavy, and I think that pods going down changed the whole f- structure of their forward line and could have rewrote what happened in the game. Yeah, well, that actually leads into the next talking point, which is the fact that Geelong really did start to get on top in the second part of that second quarter. So they were really struggling, actually. Collingwood had all the momentum. They're up by about 18 points, and Geelong needed a spark. And uh, yeah, I guess in a weird way, Podsy Adley having to be subbed out of the game might have been a blessing in disguise, as you said. Well, yes, injuries caused Geelong to make two changes. Pods going off the ground, and Harry Taylor got taken off the ground late in the second half with um, that whack to the head, which forced Lonigan to go to cloak. So that brings us to the end of our first half talking points. So let's uh, jump into some footy time trivia now. It's time now to have a go at some footy time trivia again. Play along at home and see how many of these you can get right. So the first question, we're actually looking at the 2011 Grand Final itself. And obviously, it's, a, it's been a great game so far. So the question itself is, how many lead changes were there in the 2011 Grand Final? Was it A8, B9, C10, or D11? Might be a little bit of a guess this one, but have a go anyway. So this game really was goal for goal for the majority of the day. And the answer here is actually C10. So huge number of lead changes in a single game. So it just really shows how close this game was for the majority of the day. The fact that you're able to have this many lead changes. Footy time trivia question number two. So this time we're comparing Collingwood's 2010 Premiership team, where they defeated St Kilda, to the one playing against Geelong in 2011. So the question itself is, how many of the Collingwood Premiership players from 2010 were actually playing in this grand final in 2011? Was it A13, B15, C16, or D18? Have a bit of a think about this one. A 
Again, this one might be a little bit of a guess, but the answer is actually D18. So there's actually only four players difference between the 2011 Grand Final Collingwood team and the 2010 Premiership team. So these players were actually Andrew Cracker, Leon Davis, who'd actually been dropped for the Grand Final replay, Chris Tarrant, and Alex Fasolo, who was actually the sub in this Grand Final. So it really shows that they still had the same core of their team. So it was really a great chance for them to add to their Premiership Cup cabinet. Footy time trivia question number three. So in 2011, during the regular season, Collingwood actually only lost two matches for the whole year, and this saw them finish as minor premiers for the 2011 season. So that brings us to the question, which is, which was the only team that Collingwood lost to in the home and away season of 2011? Was it A, Hawthorne, B, Geelong, C, West Coast, or D, Sydney? A little bit of time to think about this one. It was, in fact, B Geelong. So they actually played twice during the regular season. So this was round eight, where Geelong got the better of Collingwood by just three points. Very close game, obviously. And then again in round 24, this time not so close. It was Geelong by 96 points, which was a bit of a worrying sign for Collingwood leading into the finals. That day, Geelong was actually able to put a huge score on the board as well, kicking 149 points which is almost unheard of in modern AFL. Footy time trivia question number four. So around this time, Geelong had been extremely dominant for a sort of a five to six year block, really, starting with the great 2007 season. But we're looking specifically at the years between 2009 and 2011 in uh, this question. So on average, how many regular season games had Geelong lost across the 2009, 2010, and 2011 seasons? Was it A, 3, B, 4, or C, 5? So what did you go for here? A little bit of a tricky one, but the answer was actually B, 4. So across these three seasons, the average number of games they lost was just four per season. Obviously, they have a huge advantage being able to play some home games at Geelong and also not having to travel out of Victoria for a lot of their away games. So that's a large advantage that really no other team in the AFL has. Let's now get back into the third quarter of the 2011 Grand Final. So, of course, it's Collingwood with a narrow three-point lead. But what's going to happen next? Where does the game go from here? So, at the beginning of the third, it was actually Collingwood who were doing all the attacking. They couldn't put it on the board, though. And in one quick play, Geelong took it straight down the guts before Hawkins just managed to get his boot to it to goal from the square. The Cats now had a narrow lead with another lead change. Controversially, Collingwood were able to answer a short time later when a Wellingham set shot was called a goal even though it had clearly hit the post. These were the days before the goal review system, so the goal umpire's call stood, and it was a goal to the pies. At the other end, Hawkins was becoming more and more of a factor as he was starting to get his hands on the ball and clunking plenty of contested marks. It was still goal for goal, though, as Collingwood hit straight back through a Lee Brown set shot. 
At this point, scoring seems to start to dry up though, and both teams were finding it harder to find space. However, late in the quarter, it was Bartel who broke the deadlock again. After marking strongly, he put it through from an angle with a straight drop punt to give Geelong back the lead by two points. It was clear that Geelong's defence was getting on top two, making life increasingly difficult for the Collingwood forwards. They'd seemed to have blanketed Cloak, and the small forwards too were struggling to get into the game. Late in the quarter, it was Selwood who won the ball away from the defensive 50. There was a huge contest in the middle of the ground where the diminutive Stokes was able to put up a big contest with taller players around him. He did just enough to allow Bartel to have enough time to get there and help. From there, he farmed out a creative hand pass to Mitch Duncan, who had free grass in front of him. He duly accelerated and run to 49 before splitting the middle. Geelong had two in a row and was starting to look like they might overrun Collingwood. So for three-quarter time, it was just a seven-point lead to Geelong. Will Geelong be able to hold on to their lead to claim the Premiership Cup? To start the fourth quarter, Hawkins was absolutely on fire, taking contested marks at will. In many ways, this was his coming-of-age game. Unfortunately for Geelong in this game, though, he was having trouble with his set-shot kicking. And after missing two in the fourth quarter, he dished off what would have been his third shot at goal to Stevie J, who duly snapped around the corner and gave Geelong a 15-point lead. Despite having many options, Malthouse chose to keep Ben Reid on Tom Hawkins, even though it looked like Reid was carrying an injury. In a great bit of play for Geelong that started with Varco in defence, they were able to bring the ball all the way down along the wing before Varco finally got on the end of the possession chain as well and put through a classy left foot finish to give Geelong a 21-point lead and things were starting to look pretty grim for the Pies. Geelong now seemed to be completely on top. They were taking plenty of contested marks, winning the clearances and seemed to have plenty of options inside 50. And when Jay Bartell drained another goal from 50, the Premiership Cup was in Geelong's keeping. The joy for Geelong supporters didn't stop there though. Stevie J put through another, and even a scrappy Cameron Ling kick found the mark. So after three tight quarters, Geelong had completely broken the game open to go on to win their third Premiership in five years, running out winners by 38 points and cementing their place as one of the greatest teams of the modern era. Let's have a look now at my 3-2-1 of most influential players from the 2011 Grand Final. So it was actually Jimmy Bartell who got awarded the Nom Smith medal here, and I did actually agree with the Nom Smith voting here. He really did come roaring into the game in the second quarter to help Geelong steady when it was looking a little bit dicey for them. He was also able to kick quite a few clutch goals just when Geelong needed him, and was able to get plenty of effective possessions to get the ball moving Geelong's way. Two votes to Joel Selwood. As is so often the case, especially in big games, Joel Selwood was doing exactly what his team needed him to do. He was putting his body on the line for his team and getting the ball out into space to set up his teammates. He was also involved in some of the really big plays that saw Geelong get on top. And similar to Bartel, he really started to come into the game in the second quarter when Geelong really needed a response. One vote to Tom Hawkins. His contested marking was a sight to behold, really. It really just got let down by a bit of dodgy set-shot kicking. He was still able to kick a few goals, even though a couple of them did come off the ground. He was really a reliable target all day for Geelong, especially in that second half where he started absolutely dominating Ben Reid. All right, so we've heard about my 3-2-1 most influential players, but let's see if uh, Danny might have a slightly different opinion of what was going on here. Uh, well, 
personally, I believe Tom Hawkins was the most influential player on the ground with his contested marks and just the presence that he he had to um, carry the Geelong forward line after they lost J-Pod in the uh, second quarter. So I believe Tom Hawkins was the most influential player on the ground. Um, then I'd go Bartel and Selwood. But I, I believe Hawkins should have been the Norm Smith. Yeah, I, I was I was a bit torn with Hawkins because I thought he was relatively quiet in the first half. Like he did some nice things, but it really was all about the second half. And he did miss quite a few set shots. I know he was a great target for them and he did get quite a few goals. But to me, it wasn't a perfect performance, even though he was, you know, really straightening Geelong up. Well, if you look at champion, champion data, his game was one of the most prolific games of all time. He took seven contested marks. You know what that means. It's time for Frozen in Time. So what's going to be the Frozen in Time moment from this game? So there are quite a lot of good plays to choose from in this game, but I settled on Mitch Duncan's goal from late in the third quarter. It was Selwood who was able to win the ball away from the back half and saw Stokes in the middle. He competed against taller opponents in a massive contest, and he did just enough to keep the ball in his area before Jimmy Bartell could get there and lend assistance. It was Bartell who farmed out a creative hand pass to Mitch Duncan, who had all sorts of space. With only green grass in front of him, he accelerated away, and from 49, he absolutely split the middle. So that's my frozen in time moment from this game. What would yours have been? Do you have any great memories of the 2011 Grand Final? What was the most important play in your mind? Let me know on the Footy Time Facebook page or send me an email at footytime210 at gmail.com. Okay, so let's now pull out some threads from that second half. So there's quite a few talking points coming out of this hard-fought game. So one of the key moves that was made in this second half was actually uh, the move of Tom Lonigan onto Travis Cloak, who was dominating up to this point. You had a few insights here, Danny? Yeah, I believe... That move, it, was, it wasn't just Lonigan. I know Lonigan gets a lot of credit for, but if you watch closely, Hunt also um, comes across and double teams Cloak a lot. I guess uh, Geelong were realising that Cloak was sort of the man this on this day, right? And they just had to do whatever they could to sort of block that avenue up. Well, yeah, I think Lonigan was trying to beat him in the air and they were using Hunt's body to use as a sort of a... Like someone to contest with him more, a bit more ground level and come across a lot for a lot of third man, third man up. Yeah, well, it, it was a huge difference. Like, Cloak barely touched the ball in the second half. I know he had a shot at goal, but compared to what he was doing in the first half, there was a huge difference. So, I think that also comes back to uh, Geelong getting on top in the midfield and the, the, the supply just wasn't coming to him. No, it wasn't, but uh, I guess it helped having the right guy on him. So, there's a lot of, there's a combination of factors there. So, Daniel, what did you think about Collingwood's game plan um, for a grand final? Did you find that it might have got a bit predictable and maybe they played a little bit into um, Geelong's hands with their tall defenders? I thought it was interesting because in the first quarter, they weren't really doing that sort of stop-start style on the boundary. Like, they were getting a lot of run out of the back half. But when that dried up, you're right, it really did go back into that old Malthouse game plan of just going around the boundary, kick-mark style and... uh, they didn't really have a lot of chances to score in the second half. They were sort of manufacturing a lot of their goals through the midfield. So to answer your question more directly, I think they probably could have st- stood to take a bit more risk to give them a better chance of actually you know, scoring more heavily. What do you reckon? 
Yeah, I, I think they missed an opportunity to try to go down the midfield, where, the middle, sorry, when things weren't going their way. Especially in that last quarter. Like, it was still relatively close at the beginning of the quarter and Collingwood just couldn't generate anything the way they were playing. So I guess we'll never know. Maybe they, you know, would have lost by more by being a bit more daring, but you gotta you got to try, don't you? All right, let's now go to one of the pivotal moments. And it actually came from an umpire's decision, believe it or not. So Swan was had marked an errant kick from a Geelong player right near the boundary. And it was very low to the ground. But I don't know whether the umpire was blindsided or what, but he called for a ball up, even though it was obviously a mark. So to begin with, Danny, did you see it as a mark? Oh, it was clearly a mark. I think this was a huge turning point in the game. Geelong got a lot of momentum out of this play. Yeah, so basically what happened was with Swan not being paid the mark, there was a ball up right near the boundary. And in a haphazard way, Jolly managed to hit it out on the full. <laughs> so Geelong get a shot 30 metres out. Who walks up to take the kick? None other than Jimmy Bartell. So I guess if you were going to have any player going for this kick, you'd probably want, who would you want, Danny? Well, Stevie J or Jimmy Bartell. Yeah, well, either of those two. But Bartell... Is a definitely a clutch player, and he was able to, you know, get the get the ball through and put the cats in front. So it was a big turning point. You do sort of wonder if Swan had been paid that mark, what might have actually happened in that third quarter. Yes, it could have played out very differently. So I guess it's just a really good example of how one small moment can shift the game in a big way. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the tomahawk. So 2011 was really a bit of a, uh, well, he wasn't really Tomahawk yet in 2011. He was still struggling to find his way. But in this grand final, he became a contested marking beast. And as you were saying earlier, Danny, he was really the player that Geelong needed in this game. Yes, he really did play out of his skin for this game uh, with a big seven contested marks against Collingwood, who only had 11. But this was huge for Tomahawk because he during the season, he'd always only got, he was averaging two contested marks a game. So, his output was outstanding. So this was actually the most contested marks by a single player in a grand final since champion data had been keeping records, which started back in 1999. It was interesting, though, this matchup, though, because Tomahawk was playing against Ben Reid, who looked to be carrying an injury as well. And uh, there were calls throughout the game for Ben Reid to actually be moved off Tom Hawkins. They had did have a few options, people like Chris Tarrant, so... I guess, was it just Malthouse's stubbornness? What do you reckon, Danny? What was going on here? I don't know. I think Malthouse has a huge belief in his own players that they will get the job done. But gee, Tarrant did look like the obvious choice. He was playing on Stevie J who couldn't run, which would have been an obvious matchup for um, Reed to go to. Reflecting on Malthouse, it's probably one of his greatest strengths, but it's interesting that your greatest strength can also be almost your weakness because if you're unwilling to change when you've got such big, such a large amount of faith in your players, then it can come back to bite you. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword there. Yes, I think Moldhouse's brilliance and his weakness is the same thing. It's like his willingness to change his game plan in the the game against Hawthorne the week before that that threw the game open. And I just I'm just surprised he didn't try to do the same thing in the grand final. Yeah, well, we know how that worked out, don't we? Crushed Hawthorne's hearts, including yours, Danny? Yes, that's certainly true. <laughs> it's all right. Well, you, you know, you're just about to embark on a three-peat if you're going back in history, although it did take a little while longer. All right, so what about Stevie J? Four goals in the grand final coming into it injured. 
he really did get the job done. So I guess that brings us back to our chat we were having a bit earlier about taking injured players into grand finals. Yes. Um, Stevie J was good. He was solid without being fantastic. Two of his goals were just kick around the corner kind of goals. One of them was a give off from Tomahawk. But I think he did play a very important... He's just such a difficult matchup on his day. He is for sure. And he's just so creative. He doesn't actually need that much of the ball. And it looks like he had a dominant performance at four goals, but he really wasn't that dominant. So it just shows you know, how good he is. If he, if he gets a few kicks, he's likely to kick a couple of goals anyway. So I can see why I wanted to take him into this game no matter what. Yes, no. He just is a headache in the forward line. All right, so that wraps up our second half talking points. So that brings us to our next segment. For today, at least, we're going to call this segment Danny Stats. So I'll throw to you, Danny. So what are some interesting stats that you found here? I was just looking at some stats for this game and some some clear factors where Collingwood struggled. Collingwood dominated contested um, possession for the whole of 2011 um, with with the average of their differential being up plus 14. The, the Pies only lost contested ball possession five times for the whole um, 2011 season. So Geelong had a staggering 31 more um, contested possessions in this grand final than Collingwood. That's a swing of 46 contested possessions differential than Collingwood's used to. Like They, they just couldn't get their hands on the ball. I guess, do you reckon part of that might have been the whole jolly factor? Like just not getting much out of the ruck? Losing one of the premier ruckmen in the competition to then going the other way, they're just not used to it. No, for sure. So it was actually their worst performance in terms of contested possessions since round 12, 2009 against Sydney. So it's going back a fair way and they lost that game by 45 points. So I guess it's not really any surprise that the margin did blow out a bit at the end of this game. No, but it does show you how important contested possession in grand finals that really is. All right, that brings us to the end of Danny's stats. So thanks for that, Danny. Okay, so now we've got another new segment. So this one is simply called True or False. So we've got a few statements here that came out of the uh, 2011 Grand Final, either directly or indirectly. So Danny and I are going to play a bit of True or False here. So let's see where this goes. So the first one is, after winning three premierships in five years, Geelong were now the greatest team of the modern era. True or False, Danny? I think that's false. I think I still believe Hawthorne, the current Hawthorne side that won four grand finals in seven years is a lot is hard to beat. It's an interesting opinion. It's probably what I would call a Hawthorne centric opinion. <laughs> I, I also think that this is false. But uh, to me, the greatest team in the modern era was the Brisbane team. That midfield and forward line, you can't beat that. Jonathan Brown, Akamanis, Voss, Nigel Lappin. How is that not the greatest team in the modern era? Oh, it might. They just only won three premierships. I think you've got to look at the numbers. Three in a row. Hawthorne won three in a row plus a fourth. So I, I just find that hard to argue. They were they were the years of the compromised draft, though, weren't they? People always throw that at you. Expansion years. Yes, but the the compromised draft doesn't affect the teams at the top. Hence, why they stay at top. It's about the teams coming up from below them, Danny. Not as much competition. Yeah, but I, I don't think it, it, it play, yeah, comes of age in three years. I think it takes five it's years to build a player. Debate. I guess these are the three teams that everyone always talks about as being perhaps the greatest, right? It's Brisbane, Geelong, and Hawthorne. So there's always a bit of uh, toing and froing there. But So Danny's in Hawthorne, Hawthorne camp, and I'm in uh, Brisbane camp. So we can say definitely it's false here. Yes, and I also think it, 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 
you can there's an asterisk next to all three sides. You you look at Brisbane had the extra salary cap room, Geelong had all the father sons, and Hawthorne had the um, compromised draft. So there's always going to be an asterisk next to all those teams. Yeah, it's unfortunate, isn't it? But I guess any time you've got such a period of dominance, there's always something you can point to to say, this probably helped them. <laughs> yes, I think that's just a fact of life. All right, now, Daniel, Mick Moldhouse should have been replaced by Nathan Buckley as coach after this game. True or false? Well, just to give a little bit of background, Nathan Buckley did take over for Mick Moldhouse after this game. I would say this is actually false. So... We have been potting Mick Malthouse a little bit throughout this podcast, but really the only reason that Malthouse was being shown the door was because Buckley was going to be given a job somewhere else. So it didn't really seem that fair to Malthouse for me. Like He'd got them to two grand finals in a row. They'd won one. He had the team he wanted. Why not give him another year or two? But is that a little bit of he didn't start performing as coach until he there was a like a cliff that he was going towards? Yeah, I guess it's kind of the chicken or the egg, isn't it? Was it the impending loss of contract or was it just that's when his team was cherry ripe? So hard to say. But history will say that it was a tough call on Malthouse, but Nathan Buckley's now a very good coach for Collingwood and chasing that elusive premiership himself. All right, so next one. Tom Hawkins came of age in the 2011 Grand Final. What do you reckon, Danny? I think that's false. I think he had his best game, maybe of his whole career that game, but didn't stay at those heights that he that he, he played at in this game. It's interesting because he was always one of those players who was expected to be this superstar, and it did take him a few years to even start you know, holding down a regular spot and actually contributing each week. So I feel like after this game, he was able to do that and he was really able to, you know, essentially carry Geelong's forward line for close to 10 years. So to me, I would say this is true. Oh, well, we can both disagree on this one, Daniel. <laughs> we're, not, we're not agreeing too much, are we, Danny? Pod getting subbed out of the game um, with a dislocated shoulder helped Geelong's forward line structure. True or false, Daniel? This one is, to me, definitely true. We've already talked a bit about this. Geelong looked top-heavy, as you said, Danny. And from this moment, Geelong actually seemed to be sparked into action for one reason or another. They had more run, they got more of the ball, and the forward line just seemed to work with Tomahawk dragging down all those contested marks. So to me, 100% true. Sorry, Pod. Yeah, I also think the weather played a huge factor on this as well. For sure. Was a bit of greasy conditions there. Okay, next one. So it was too risky to play Steve Johnson in the 2011 Grand Final. Uh, we've touched on this earlier, Daniel, but I, I still think this is false. I think if Geelong had have had a few more injuries, maybe, but with one player that's slightly injured, I think that's fine. Um, Daniel, Collingwood should have taken more risks in the last quarter of the Grand Final. True. They needed to do something different. They were just playing into Geelong ha- Geelong's hands by continuing to go down the line and uh, essentially giving them giving Geelong the game they wanted. It, it was on their terms, so Collingwood had to be the ones who changed. What do you reckon, Danny? Yeah, I, I could go even further on this. Should they have changed in the third quarter when the game was slipping away? Perhaps, yeah. But I think definitely in the last quarter, it was time for some changes, but just didn't come about, unfortunately, for Collingwood supporters. Danny, the 2011 Grand Final Triumph was the last hurrah 
for an aging Geelong side? Uh, well, I, I guess this is true because uh, the stats back this up. They were always thereabouts, but they haven't been able to reach those, those same heights since. Yeah, it is interesting kind of what hap- has happened in these ensuing Chris Scott years in terms of Geelong, you know, making the finals with regularity, but really being unable to have a major impact in really any of these final series since. Do you reckon that says something about their game style or it's just they just simply weren't as good as these early 2010 teams? I think it's two factors, Daniel. I think they were aging. I think they weren't able to rebuild with the draft because of the comp- um, compensation that was happening at that time. And I just believe it's they needed to rebuild a list, which they have never bottomed out. No, that's that's very true. So for a long, long time, they didn't have a first-round draft pick. And uh, while they're still at the top of the ladder, well, they are usually somewhere near the top of the ladder with all those games they win in Geelong. When it comes to crunch time in the finals, unfortunately, they are usually found wanting one way or another. All right, great. Thanks for taking us through all that, Danny, with true and false. I think that was a bit of fun. And uh, I don't recall exactly how many trues and how many falses there were, but there was a bit of a disagreement between us. So it's a bit of fun there. It's time now for alternate history to listen up, all those Collingwood fans out there, because we're going to talk about what would have had to change for you guys to have won the 2011 Grand Final. So in this version of history, how does Collingwood end up winning the Premiership Cup. So Danny and I are both going to take you through some of the things that we think might have actually swung this in Collingwood's favour. And uh, we'll see which explanation is perhaps more plausible or more interesting out of the two of ours. So we haven't agreed on much, Danny, so I'm guessing you're probably going to like your version. I'm probably going to like my version better, but that's okay. All right. So it was actually going pretty well for Collingwood in this game, really up to about halfway through the second quarter. They'd got out to an 18-point lead, and it was actually a grubber kick from Geelong Stokes that went tantalizingly close to the post. It did actually just get through for a goal. But in my version, alternate history, it hits the post, which basically stalls Geelong's momentum, meaning that, that Collingwood are actually able to go into halftime with more of a lead. So instead of their three-point lead, they actually hold on to that three-goal lead that they had halfway through the second so that was a really key moment in the game to me, Geelong being able to get back into the game in the second half of that quarter. Another key moment that I'm going to swing to Collingwood's favour is the Dane Swan mark that we've already talked about. So instead of it being uh, deemed uh, play on and the ensuing play resulting in Geelong goal, this time Swan has actually paid the mark and is Collingwood easily able to exit defence. And the last key move that I want to talk to you about that is going to help Collingwood maintain their lead is uh, Ben Reid being moved off Hawkins, replaced by Chris Tarrant early in the third quarter in a beautiful insight from Coach Malthouse. Must have had a crystal ball there, Danny. Is that, is that enough to get Collingwood over the line, those three things? Let's, let's have a listen to your version. How does Collingwood win this game? Well, I think a hand of God needs to come be stepped in. I think meatloaf needs to sing. I think the clouds need needs. I think the sun needs to come out to be a sunny day, because I believe in a sunny day this gameplay goes completely different. I think Jolly doesn't get injured because he doesn't slip and doesn't get a, a hit across him. He, so he's fit for the whole game. Um, Cloak keeps his dominance in the second half because there's no injuries. Uh, 
the rain comes down in the second quarter, and that's when the big cha- matchup between Swan and Ling gets gets going. And um, after that moment, uh, history shows Swan only got four touches in the second half. In a dry day, that's completely different. Swan runs off him and ends up the game with 36 touches. The ball goes in the forward line. Cloak kicks six goals. It's a different game. All right, so in this version of history, Danny, how much does Collingwood win by? I had them winning by nine points. As you see in the game, the rain starts at the end of the second quarter, and that's when Geelong gets their momentum. That rain doesn't fall. Collingwood keeps going and wins by 36 points. Okay, interesting. Two very different accounts. I also had some sort of Dane Swan stuff, but I felt like it was going a bit long, so I actually cut that out. But uh, in my version, Dane Swan actually moves forward and kicks a couple of goals on Link because he was a decent forward when he went forward back in these days. Yeah, but if you if you watch the first quarter, you watch Link cannot catch Swan and can't stop him. That rain starts... Game slows up. Ling's, Ling is all over him for the okay, rest of the game. Well, I think it's safe to say that you've definitely changed more in your alternate history. <laughs> so um, I don't know which ones. I changed. What, I, I I think I changed less than you. I just changed the you weather. Changed the weather, and that changed everything. So you changed one thing, whereas I changed uh, a goal that didn't hit the post and an umpire making the right decision. So yeah, there's, there's a bit there. Also, I reckon if Beams was fit, it's a completely different game. More midfield depth, more speed yeah. across the ground. I think that could have played really, really helped so Collingwood. I think you can see in both our explanations here, not that much really had to change for Collingwood to win this game. So it was, they were actually favourites going into this game. So perhaps it is the one that got away for Collingwood, the chance to go back to back. All right. So the only thing left for us to do for this one is whose version of uh, alternate history do we like more slash okay so we're rating this on plausibility and um whimsy perhaps a bit of that so what do you reckon danny who has who has who had the better version i think i did obviously (laughs) i think yours did tie together nicely so let's go with yours i'll I'll give you the win here i think all 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 i needed to do is change the weather (laughs) (laughs) the weather gods eh that's all we need all right. Yeah, and we all know Geelong are wet weather specialists, and that's why Jimmy Bartel is known, is famous for being a wet weather spe- uh, specialist, wins the Norm Smith. It did help, seem to help them in the 2009 grand final as well, so I'd have to agree with you there, Danny. You got one up on me here, so well done. All right, thanks for playing through all those different segments with me, Danny. It's been great having you on the show. You're able to offer some really interesting insights. Thanks, Daniel. It's been a lot of fun. So that's all we have time for today on Footy Time. Make sure to tune back in where we'll delve into some more of the great grand finals of the past decade.